<laughs> um, today we're going to define what it means to bark up the wrong tree as searching for God in human buildings. And also I think we're going to see these two things, searching for God in human buildings and trying to find God in religious practices that exploit the poor. Right? So these are the, these are the things we're going to define today as we're barking up the wrong tree here. And so God is not to be found in such places. But rather, we're going to see in this text today that God is to be found in the person of Jesus whose death and resurrection serves as the sign of the authority by which he speaks. So let's pray. Send your spirit among us, God, as we meditate on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Prepare our minds to hear your word, move in our hearts to accept what we hear, and purify our wills to obey you in joy and faith. As we pray through Christ, our Savior. Amen. And so the sun was setting, darkness was descending when this really famous Sufi mystic was outside of her small hut and she was searching for something. And a few people began to gather around her and they were asking her what she was searching for and they were offering to help her find it. Her name was Rabia. She said she had lost her needle. And so the people reminded her that the sun was setting and it would soon be nearly impossible to find this needle under those conditions. And they asked her, you know, like, where had she lost it? They were hoping to narrow the search a little bit. She looks at him and says, well, it would actually be better for you to not ask that question. Uh, because it had not fallen on the road outside the hut at all, but she had actually lost it inside of her hut. And so everyone started giggling, thinking that she was joking. And this one bold skeptic said what everybody else was probably thinking, like, we knew you were a little bit nuts, you know? <laughs> If the needle's fallen inside your house, then why are you out on the road looking for it out here? And she responded for the simple reason that inside the house, there's no light. On the outside, there's still a little bit of light left. And people started laughing, you know, just what we're doing here. They're like, you're, you're crazy. And they laughed at the ridiculousness of this reply. And they actually just began to walk away and leave. And she called them back and she said, listen, this is exactly what you are doing. I'm just following your example. She said, you go on seeking happiness in the outside world without asking the most fundamental question, which is, where exactly have I lost it? She said, you have lost it inside, and yet you're searching for it on the outside. And so we have this like English, right, this English idiom, which I'm an idioms fan, uh, for this futile kind of searching, right? This searching for the thing that we're looking for, but searching in the wrong place. It's called barking up the wrong tree, right? So if we know where idioms come from, which I'm always fascinated by, this one comes from the world of raccoon hunting. Do we know that? <laughs> all right? So barking up the wrong tree, it's already, the mind is working, right? And so the dogs chase the raccoons, and they think they have, they've chased one up a tree, and they think they have it cornered, and they sit there, and they bark at it, and they jump on the tree because they think the raccoon's up in it, and the hunters come along and, and uh, get the raccoon, but the raccoon has already jumped from the top of that tree into the next tree, into the next tree, and that thing is like long gone, right? Um, and so that's where this, this idiom comes from. And this is where my mind went when I saw this. I'm like, in today's scripture lesson, we're going to see some people barking up the wrong tree. Like, they're searching for God in the wrong place. And so Jesus is going to correct them on that um, and try to explain in this kind of strange manner where God actually was. So here we go from John 2, 13 to 25. The Passover of the Jews was near. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found people selling cattle and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. 
Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, take these things out of here. Stop making, and this is important, my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume. The Jews then said to him, what sign can you show us for doing this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, this temple has been under construction for 46 years, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The word of the Lord. Oh, much better. When King David reigned in Jerusalem, he only dreamed of a place where God would dwell among his people, the temple. And so David wasn't able to complete this dream of his, but he did purchase the land on Mount Moriah. His son Solomon eventually built the temple on that site. And we do well maybe to remember, it's a little like foreshadowing, I think, into today's text when we get into this a little bit, that the temple built by Solomon was actually built on the backs of slave labor. And I think that's important to understand when we get to some of Jesus's, perhaps, you know, the anger, the overturning of the tables. And this temple had become this symbol for God's presence on earth. And so Solomon's temple, it was eventually destroyed by the Babylonians, later rebuilt by the Jews who had returned from captivity. And shortly just before Jesus's day, Herod, uh, known as Herod the Great, began this temple expansion program to beautify it and kind of bring it up to speed with some of the glorious pagan temples of the day. So he hires workers by the thousands, built this magnificent building out of like gold and marble. It's just unbelievable. Um, expanding its size, if you can believe this, in this ancient day to over four football fields in length, with walls 15 stories high. The limestone blocks on the foundation alone of the temple weighed over 500 tons each. Like how they even moved these things, I have no idea. So Herod was actually also known as the king of the Jews. He was propped up by Caesar Augustus after Herod had taken Jerusalem for Rome. And Jesus had made this pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple what every pilgrim going to Jerusalem expected to see. The bustling temple courts where there was buying and selling and money changing going on. And so I kept asking myself over and over when I was looking at this question is, why is Jesus so angry? Like, what's going on here to produce this kind of anger? Really, an anger, I'm like, we, we don't see this anywhere else in the New Testament. And so, you know, as I was kind of thinking about this, I think that Jesus is angry because there's this house of worship, my father's house, as he says, has become something other than its purpose. It's become a bank. It's become a shopping mall. And so I love it. When I was reading some Bible commentators on this passage, they like to soften Jesus' anger by saying that Jesus was full of holy zeal. You know, um, like, isn't it just fair to call it what it is? Like, he's really angry. Uh, you don't overturn tables and drive out business if you are not furious, even at the commercialism, and probably maybe more than anything else, the injustice that was surrounded by the temple practice. He's angry because of what he perceives to be this inappropriate business practices in a worship center. And so he's angry because in paying the temple tax, the people who suffered the most were the poor. We might remember the widow who gave her last two coins, right? The people 
This hurts the poor. Paying this temple tax, coming up with the money for the sacrifices, while the rich were making this easy, easy payment. And I think what's going on is I think the rich are expecting some crumbs to be thrown their way, while the poor are giving everything they have to participate in this uh, this kind of corrupt practice that was going on at the temple. And maybe the poor being exploited in God's house was more than Jesus is willing to tolerate. And so he makes a whip, he knocks over tables, throwing chairs like Bobby Knight style, is what I was thinking of, um, for those of us who remember him. Uh, disrupting business, driving people and the animals out. And so I remember years ago there was, this, uh, there was this moment where I experienced the power of a whip firsthand, right? So one of my coworkers, Kyle's mom, for those of you who remember Kyle, um, his mom, Linda, and I used to work together. And so she was so excited when she went to Australia, and she came back with a, a whip from Australia. And so she wanted to show it off to me. And so she called me out of my office, and she called another coworker who shall remain nameless um, out of his office. And I got to her desk, and we were waiting for another coworker. And when he started walking from his office to her desk, she stood up. And she snapped, she walked toward him and she snapped the whip in the air, okay? Like, it made some of the loudest, scariest sounds I've ever heard. Um, I started laughing. I thought this was really funny. My coworker did not find it funny at all. I mean, not at all. Um, He actually turned and ran and shut himself in his office. He actually thought she was, like, attacking him. Okay? Um, Like... This, he had, it was so traumatic, he actually had a really hard time forgiving her. Like, I'm not kidding. It was really that, uh, it was that difficult. And it's just play, okay? So imagine what this scene is like. Jesus, this peaceful, pacifist rabbi, snapping a whip, turning over tables, knocking over coins, driving animals and people out of the temple, right? This is, uh, this was a pretty intense moment. And so these tables, they'd actually been set up probably a few weeks before Passover. It's this convenience to pilgrims who were traveling a great distance to Jerusalem. The pagan coins with the face of the emperor on them, those couldn't be used in the temple. They had to be uh, exchanged for temple-worthy equivalents. That money was used to buy animals for sacrifice and to pay the temple tax. So is Jesus opposed to the temple? No. After all, these practices were actually commanded by God in the Torah. You want to look it up. Deuteronomy 14. Okay? And so the problem is, I think what's going on is that these practices were exploiting the poor. And Jesus has had enough of this. This house needed to be cleaned. And so Jesus was actually fortunate at this moment not to have been arrested on the spot by the temple guard or assaulted by the people he drove out. Jesus not only disrupts the business, but he actually ratchets things up a little bit by calling the temple my father's house. It's nothing that's really going to get him in a little bit of trouble, Right? It doesn't go over well with the powers that be. And so it shouldn't come as a surprise that the Jewish establishment present would ask a really legitimate question. Who the heck do you think you are? Coming in here and disrupting the practices of this temple. And so they demand some sort of a sign, some sort of sign of authority from this man, Jesus, who appears to be claiming to represent God. They want to know, what sign can you show us? How can you prove that you are who you say you are? And it's like, Jesus isn't this ordinary pilgrim, right, who's standing in front of him. This is true, right? His dad does own and inhabit the building. They don't know that, right? His dad is the landlord. His dad makes the rules. 
There is this intimate connection between God and Jesus. The authorities say, you know what, prove it. We want to see you prove it. Maybe they want him to perform miracles like Moses to Pharaoh. They want this dog and pony show. They want Jesus to show off a little bit. Um, and Jesus gives them this really mysterious answer that, of course, they misunderstand. The Gospel of John is like full of people misunderstanding everything that Jesus says, right? And it causes them to go barking up the wrong tree. Jesus responds to the demand for a sign with this. He says, destroy the temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Okay, now temple renovations, they've been going on for 46 years. They were actually going on in Jesus' day. So the claim to be able to rebuild what's taken 46 years in three days is outrageous to the people who heard it. So we understand today something that they couldn't have understood in the moment. Jesus isn't talking about buildings. He's talking about his own body. He's saying that the only sign that you're ever going to get that shows that I am who I say I am is that I will be killed and three days later I'll be raised. This is the only sign Jesus is willing to give. The sign of Jesus' authority would be one thing, his death and his resurrection. Now, if Jesus is not who he says he is, then the statement is kind of indefensible. It's blasphemous. Jesus is already in trouble and misunderstood by those there. Now, he's in trouble. The cross starts to loom even larger, and this story is what sets in motion the things that could not be reversed. And so I was thinking a little bit about this story. What is it that we look at in this story that helps guide us through the season of Lent? The season that grows kind of a little bit darker with each passing week. And I, there's two things I want to share that I, I've been thinking about a lot in this passage. At first, there's been this, always been this intimate connection in the ancient church between the season of Lent and giving to the poor, right? Um, that's why we have that jar back there. And we've done this multiple times in Lent because as a communal practice, we want to be uh, kind of in line with, with the ancient church. What's important to them should be important to us. And there's been this connection for a long time. And so we ask questions, you know, like, what we, what we do with our resources, these gifts that God has given us on loan, what we, what we do with those things gives the community a picture of the God that we worship. It's really important stuff, especially today in kind of missional, missional church world. This becomes even more important. So how we treat the poor, how we treat the oppressed, how we treat the widow and the orphan, the stranger, how we treat the refugee, how we treat the immigrant, how we treat the outcast, how we treat anyone that stands on the margins. This gives the world a picture, an image of the God that's worshipped, right? And so the first insight is about our participation within an economic system. And so I want to do this by actually just asking a question. If people were to look at our church, at Lightshine Church, and how we use resources, how we participate within an economic system and structure, what picture of God do they get by looking at us? So we can think about this for a few moments. We don't have to answer it. Uh, but I'm going to give you an example of what I'm talking about by a neighborhood that I found in San Jose and their response to homelessness. So this is going to help make it a little clearer, I think. I came across this story out of San Jose, a true story from July of last year. And it's related to the tiny house movement. Anybody know what that is? Yeah. All right? Yeah. So it's, it's really interesting. It's this movement where people are choosing to downsize the homes they live in. So the average American home is 2,600 square feet. It's like, when I heard that, I'm like, oh, darn, I wish. Um, but that's the average American home size, right? And so people are choosing to live between homes between 100 and 400 square feet. These tiny 
Little homes, like our first apartment. If I could put it in. <laughs> this is about what we, Katie and I started. Um, this is before it was a thing. And so in the city of San Jose, <laughs> uh, there's this sin really sincere effort to end homelessness. And so they had this one plot left within the city uh, limits of San Jose where they wanted to build 20 tiny homes to house the homeless. Right? It, it was a really cool idea, um, really progressive thinking. And so when they kind of made this plan known, um, the location, it upset the residents in that community who said that they were really concerned about their decreasing property values. Right? And so I'm going to give you a couple quotes to show you where we're at. So one woman said, I think the tiny homes are great, and people can enjoy them if they like, but please don't put them in my neighborhood. Okay? Another woman who had worked really hard as a realtor in order to move into this neighborhood where close by where the, the tiny homes were going to be built. This is what she said. She said 20 homeless leads to telling their friends where 20 could become 60 and 60 could become 100. Not in the neighborhood where there are children and dogs walking. All right? Now, I wonder, this is my question. Oh, I don't get in trouble for questions like this. I wonder if hearing this, Jesus will go into kitchens in San Jose and overturn a few more tables and drive a few more people up. That's what I wonder, right? This is where I'm thinking. <laughs> it's like based on the limited knowledge that you know of this situation, if this neighborhood were a church, what would it be communicating about the God worship there? Now do we have a clearer picture of what I'm talking about. What would that be communicating? It would be communicating that there are some clear delineated lines between some and others. Some are in and some are out. Maybe God loves the in, doesn't care so much about the out. That's what it's communicating. And so... I had a conversation on Thursday morning with Denise Cortez, who runs Lutheran Social Services, and we were talking about this issue of homelessness in our community. We actually have the same issue going on right here in, in where Katie and I live in New Ray Park. So there's a, a little area where there's some folks sleeping in their cars, and the residents have been complaining about the fact that their property values are decreasing because people are living out of their cars. And so what their complaints are similar to this the 20 could become 60, and the 60 could become 100, and we could have like another skid row here in Newbury Park. Um, pretty unlikely, by the way. But let's just say uh, that when I talked to Denise about this, here's what I learned. What I'm learning about homelessness in our community is actually really simple. Most of the homeless in our community, they are from, guess where? Our community. They went to our high schools. They played on our sports teams. They went to our churches. Most of our homeless in this community are from our community. That means that they are our neighbors. They are a part of our community, right? This is what I'm learning from people who know a lot more about it than I do. And so when people become more concerned with property values than with human beings, I get a little more than concerned. The truth is it got me thinking, and this is the honest of it, right? It really got me thinking about how would I respond if I was there. Uh, it forced me to ask some tough questions about myself. Would I value property over people? How would I participate? How do I participate in the structures that work against the things that God is already up to in the world? Like, how am I a part of the problem? And would Jesus overturn my kitchen table? I don't know. They're good questions. It really got me thinking about this kind of stuff. 
and how I participate in these systems that oppress some while elevating others. It made me also think about children and dogs, about the woman who said there are children and dogs walking here. So I want to talk real quick about my children and my dog. First, my kids. As a father, I want my daughters to be safe, but I also want them to see that human beings are created in the image of God and deeply love of God. I want them to understand that all people should be housed and fed and properly clothed. I want them to understand that we're all connected as a human community so that one of our members, when one of our members suffers, the community suffers. When one of our members is lifted up, the community is benefited. I want my girls to know that growing up challenging economic structures that oppress some and serves others is, is, a, is a good thing. And so what about dogs? All right? Let's talk about my dog. My dog is really smart. He's really handsome. I can promise you that as smart as my dog is, he does not know or care whether a person has a home or not. He has no idea. He'll be best friends with anybody that pets him or gives him food. Right? Now, if our dogs, the, dog, the, pro, the trouble is the dogs aren't the ones that need a renovation of the heart. It's, the, it's their owners, okay? Uh, and here's what really got me thinking. Love doesn't draw lines. It erases them. We are invited to the margins knowing that if we stand there with the people that are there, those margins get erased. Those people, whoever they are, become our people, become our neighbors, and the lines between the us's and the them's get blurred, right? And so the antagonists in the story that we read in the Bible, they're worried about declining property values of the temple. Jesus is talking about destroying the temple, right? This is problematic. The, the property values would, would be going down, all right? And they would. The temple's actually going to be destroyed shortly after Jesus' death. Something would be lost. Its value would decline. But here's what John the Evangelist is getting at. That's something that's far greater than property values and the, the value of this building would be lost. And it brings me to the final thought. The sign of Jesus' authority was his death and his resurrection. People are always more important than buildings. It's God's beloved son that would be lost. This is where we're going with this text. It would cost God something. It's Jesus who would suffer and who would die for the benefit of the world, the benefit of all the world, not some. The temple was thought to be this place where Israel's God, Yahweh, had promised to live in the midst of the people, the place where God's name was to be great. And here's what's happening with this story. We go, there's a shift. And the shift is from temple, from building, to Jesus. From temple to Jesus. So we can go looking for God in all kinds of places, and this is what the probably men that were confronting Jesus about this, the religious leaders, this is what they were, probably what Jesus wanted them to learn. You can go looking for God in all kinds of places. You can search for God in, in buildings, but you're not going to find God there. In Acts 7, 47, Luke actually says this, he says, but it was Solomon who built a house for God, yet the Most High God does not dwell in houses made with human hands. And so when we think about this, the implications of what Jesus is saying the shift from temple to Jesus. If Jesus' body, body is now the temple of God, if, if we realize that, do we recognize what we have in Jesus? We have Emmanuel, we have God with us. 
And so what this text is doing is it's shifting. It's saying that Jesus is the place where God dwells. That's what this story is trying to remind us. That's what John most wants us to understand. And it was after his death and his resurrection, the scripture said, the disciples remembered, oh yeah, we remembered what Jesus said in the temple. And they believed the word, the scripture, and the words that Jesus spoke. And so we're just left with, you know, where are we? Where are we searching for God? John wants us to look no further than Jesus, because to look elsewhere would be to be barking up the wrong tree. Looking to Jesus, and also with the second part that we see in this text, is looking to Jesus, following Jesus' lead. That Christians work to bridge the gap that exists between people. That exists between people so that we can exist, coexist as a community of real mutuality, where there are no margins at all. Where all have a seat at the table, and that is, of course, assuming that Jesus hasn't already knocked it over. Let's pray. God and Jesus, you are been revealed your perfect love in suffering, in death, and in resurrection. And God, that is the sign that you choose to give us. And so God, may we have eyes for you, and may your ways be ours. We pray this in Christ's name.